your church this morning. I'm asking God that everyone comes out changed, that your word comes forth in such a prominent and such a powerful and such a potent and such a beautiful way that it just absolutely shakes the foundations of who we are. Lord, that it comes forth with transforming power, that it edifies us, it equips us, it challenges us, it transforms us into something new. Lord, that we may look more and more like you. And God, I pray that in all of this, you receive this as an offering of worship. I'm praying that in all of this, you receive this as an act of devotion and that you are pleased with the things that we do in Faith Memorial Church this morning. Lord, because everything that we're doing, we're doing for you. We love you, Jesus, and we ask that you bless this service. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Psalm 93. Psalm 93. Lord, I hope you know what you're doing. Hallelujah. <laughs> uh, he does. He always does. Psalm 93, verse 1. The Lord reigns. Amen. That's, that's all you need. You can go home right now. Three words. The Lord reigns. Yahweh. It's all caps. In the English translations, they don't always put God's name in. They usually put Lord. But when L-O-R-D are all capitalized, it's a substitution for His proper name, Yahweh. Yahweh reigns. Yahweh reigns. He's still on the throne. He is clothed with majesty. The Lord is clothed. He has girded Himself with strength. Surely the world is established so that it cannot be moved. Your throne is established from of old. You are from everlasting. The floods have lifted up, O Lord. The floods have lifted up their voice. The floods lift up their waves. The Lord on high is mightier than the noise of many waters, than the mighty waves of the sea. Your testimonies are very sure. Holiness adorns your house, O Lord, forever. Go over to Jeremiah 8, verse 19. And we're going to read a couple of verses and then we're just going to preach for a little while. Verse 19. Actually, let's do verse 18. This is the prophet speaking. I would comfort myself in sorrow. My heart is faint in me. Listen. The voice, the cry of the daughter of my people from a far country. Is not the Lord in Zion? Is not her king in her? Why have they provoked me to anger with their carved images, with foreign idols? The harvest is past, the summer is ended, and we are not saved. For the hurt of the daughter of my people I am hurt. I am mourning. Astonishment has taken hold of me. Is there no balm in Gilead? Is there no physician there? Why then is there no recovery for the health of the daughter of my people? Psalm 93. The Lord reigns. If you're taking notes, Anglo-Saxon, amen. Write this. Unequal. Unequal. God is unequaled. He has no parallel. He has no equal. He has no prequel. He has no sequel. He has no rival. He has no opposition. God is majestic in holiness. He is omniscient. He is omnipotent. He is omnibenevolent. He is omnipresent. That means that He is all good. He is all knowing. He is all present. And He is all powerful. God does not have an opposite. We like to pit God and Satan as opposites. That's not true. Satan is just another creature. He is another created thing. And let me tell you something everything that comes against you in this life is using borrowed power 
See, we like to think of God in the same category as us. And most people, when they think about different things in terms of strength, they'll put people here and they'll put angels a little bit above them and then they'll put like Satan as a a strong angel and then they'll put God as above them and they'll have like this stack of what power is. But let me tell you something. There is nothing more far from the truth, nothing further from the truth. It is not that you have this stack and tiers of power. You have God and you have not God. And everything that has any power or any strength or any breath or any life at all is using borrowed power from God. And the moment that He decides to stop sustaining their existence, they're done. Kaputsky, gone. There is only God. He has no rival. He has no equal. He has no opposite. God is sovereign and He is in control. I don't know what else you need to hear this morning, but you need to hear that. God is in control. He still sits on the throne. Amen? Amen. Psalm 93 continues and it says, The Lord is clothed. He girds Himself with strength. Well, let me tell you something. In theological circles, we like to say this. We like to say God is simple. In one sense, he is the most simple being in existence. In the other sense, he's the most complicated and incomprehensible being. When I say that God is simple, I don't mean that he's easy to understand. When I say that he's simple, I mean that he cannot be divided. See, I stand up here and I have a head, I have a torso, I have legs, I have feet, I have hands. If you cut my hand off, I'm still CA. If you cut my leg off, I'm still CA. Granted, it'd be a lot harder for me to get around, but I'm still CA. I can be divided and separated into different pieces and parts and still be me. I can have things taken out. I lose a tooth, that doesn't mean, oh no, I'm suddenly not CA anymore. I'm still me, just one tooth less. God's not that way. God cannot be separated. He cannot be divided. If you take anything away from God, He ceases to be God. If you take away God's infinity, He is not God because God is infinite. If you take away His knowledge, He is not God because God is omniscient or all-knowing. If you tried to take away a piece of His power, He would cease to be God. You cannot separate any of His attributes from who He is. He is undivided. So when it says that He is clothed with strength, it means that strength and majesty are a part of who He is. It's not like He steps up to His closet and says, today I think I'm going to put on strength. No, it's a a fabric of who He is. It's a part of God. Let's keep going. So He is unequaled. Surely the world is established so that it cannot be moved. He is unshakable. When God sets something up, it cannot be destroyed. It cannot be taken down. It cannot be undone. I think about the church when Jesus says, upon this rock, upon the rock of the revelation of the identity of Christ. See, they like to say, oh, you're Peter. Peter means Cephas. Cephas means rock. He's talking about Peter. No, he's not. He's talking about the revelation that Peter had of Christ being the Messiah, the Son of God. That revelation, the revelation of Christ's identity as being fully God, fully man. That revelation is the rock upon which the church is built and the gates of hell cannot prevail against it. Meaning it cannot be shaken, it cannot be brought down, it cannot be destroyed, it cannot be broken. The author of Hebrews capitalizes on this theme when he says, Therefore, seeing that we have received a kingdom which cannot be shaken... Let us serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear, for our God is a consuming fire. 
So he is unequaled and he is unshakable. He is unstoppable. The floods have lifted up, O Lord. The floods have lifted up their voice. The floods lift up their waves. The Lord on high is mightier than the noise of many waters, than the mighty waves of the sea. We used to live in Mississippi, and I've told this story before. We, I hated living in Mississippi. There were great things about it. We lived in like two minutes from the beach, if you walking. Like, you walk out our front door, you'd get hit in the face with sand. And then you kept walking down the street, and there's the beach. White sand's beautiful. Our drive to church every morning was driving along the coast. It was pretty, wasn't it? It was a beautiful drive every morning. But here's the issue. We lived, if you guys know a picture of the Gulf Coast, you have Florida, and then you have Alabama, and then you have this little bitty tidbit of Mississippi, and then you have, you know, Louisiana and Texas. That's the Gulf Coast. Well, every time a hurricane comes into the Gulf, its trajectory is Mississippi. I don't know why. It just Its trajectory is the Gulf Coast of Mississippi. And then if it goes to the right, Mississippi gets hit. If it goes to the left, Mississippi gets hit. People talk about New Orleans because of the levees and Hurricane Katrina, but Mississippi, particularly Waveland, Mississippi, was actually ground zero and got hit worse than... Louisiana did. And before that, there was Hurricane Camille back in the 60s, and it was worse than Katrina. So we lived in what I started to call Hurricane Alley. And the year, one of the years that we lived there, there were like 20-something hurricanes with a trajectory for the Gulf Coast of Mississippi. And so every time we'd be checking the weather, okay, it's a Category 2, is it going to drop back down? Is it going to amp up? Do we need to leave? And so we'd all the time, you had bags packed, so you just went to the hall closet, reached up, pulled out your bag, threw it in the car, let's go. All your priceless possessions, throw them in the car, let's go, get away from the hurricane. And we had to do that like six or seven times in a year. It was awful. It was awful. I'll never forget it. We had done that and used up all of our expenses. We already knew that we were moving. We had already um, resigned the position because God had told us to. We had already listed the house. It was already contingent. And we were two weeks away from closing. Two weeks. And there's a tropical storm comes in the Gulf Coast. And we're like, we have left for everything. We can ride out a tropical storm. Well, overnight, it goes from being a tropical storm to being a Category 1, to being a Category 2, to being a Category 3, and hits Category 4. And at that point, you can't get out. That's why so many people lost their lives with Katrina, because they were trying to get out, and they got stuck on, like, the on-ramps and different things, and then it hit, and it was too late. So you, at that point, you just buckled down, and we're in there, and I'll never forget, you know, looking, being in the eye of a hurricane is an intense experience. Because everything's still and it's green. It's got like this green tint to it. It's crazy. But I'll never forget the hurricane hits. It rips the roof off of our house. There's this huge tree. It's like I couldn't wrap my arms around half of it. And it picks the tree up and lays it over just inches from face car. And then we had a shed out back on a concrete foundation. It picks the shed up straight up and throws it across our yard crazy and so we're seeing all of this happen and it's one of the most terrifying experiences I've ever had in my life I'm not going to get you I like I'd love to be like I'm so tough I was not scared at all (laughs) no I was I was I was I was scared but more more so for my family because I have two little kids and a wife and it's terrifying 
But anyway, so you go through that. You never forget the sound. I think that that's the most intense experience is because even before the hurricane comes and you look out over the ocean, you can tell by the waters and the sound of the wind over top of the waters what's coming. And so you have people that throw hurricane parties and they sit on the beach and they have like drinks and stuff and they're like, wait, the hurricane's coming. And I'm like, y'all are on some different kind, smoking something strange. (laughs) But anyway, anyway, you begin to see the waves come up and it produces the storm surge and just gets that undertow and it circles and these waves are huge and the sound is just deafening. And when I read this psalm, that's what my mind goes back to is when we rode out the hurricane and you could hear the sound of the waves crashing. And it's not water hitting water, it's water hitting the land and hitting the street and hitting the buildings and hitting the trees and the wind blowing stuff over and the tornadoes and the lightning and the fires because all this stuff happens in a hurricane. And it's just this insane experience and it makes you realize how small and how weak you are. Because it doesn't matter, I mean... Mike's a pretty strong guy. <laughs> pretty strong guy. But it doesn't matter how strong you are. You can't stand up to a hurricane. I mean, it doesn't, it doesn't matter how young you are. It doesn't matter how fast you are. It doesn't matter. We were explaining to the kids the difference between a tornado and a hurricane. We're like, well, a tornado could go across the opposite side of the street and take out that whole street, and your house could be untouched. But a hurricane comes through, everything gets decimated. And I think about this psalm, and I'm reading it, and I'm picturing this, this intensity, this destructive force coming that nothing can stand against. And the psalmist just says, God, you're better than that. This doesn't touch you. This doesn't shake you. This doesn't pick you up. This doesn't move you. I think about, you know, we are so easily moved by our circumstances. You know that? Like you get a report, and it moves you. Like you're standing strong and you're grounded in your faith and you get a negative report and suddenly you're over here and you're like, wait a second. Christ isn't moved. God isn't moved by the report. God isn't moved by opposition. God isn't moved by what people try to do to come against him. I think about the Gospels and some of my favorite passages in Scripture. There you go. There's that word favorite. There's a thing in Scripture, particularly in the Gospels, that I just absolutely love. I love it when it says they were going to kill him. When it says they were going to kill Jesus, they were going to stone him or they were going to push him off the cliff. And it has like this one-liner where it says he just walked through the midst of them. You guys ever read that? And I'm like, wait a second. You have a mob that's trying to push you off a cliff and you just walk through the midst of them? They're picking up stones to stone you to death and you just walk through the midst of them? They don't stop him. And I'm like, think about this. You're being attacked by a mob. How do you get through the midst of them without them pulling you back to the center? I mean, Paul was attacked by a mob. They took, picked him up, carried him out of the city, and stoned him and left him for dead. And they were going to do the same thing to Jesus, and he just walks through the midst of them. Like, they don't touch him. They don't shake him. They don't stop him. He just goes about doing what he was going to do. And so the next point, he is unequaled. He is unstoppable. Unstoppable. 
He is unequaled. He is unshakable. He is unstoppable. His purpose and his will will come to pass. Isaiah 55 says that the word of the Lord goes forth from his mouth and will not return to him void, but it will always accomplish the purpose for which it was sent. God is going to do what he is going to do and his will will be accomplished in this world whether you like it or not. And whether people come against you or not. God has a calling and a purpose on your life and if you step into that, He will carry that out in your life no matter what they say. No matter what they do. The circumstances, the winds and the waves, the hurricanes, it can't stop what God is going to do. It can't shake His purposes, it can't shake His church, and it cannot stop what He is going to do. He is unequaled, He is unshakable, He is unstoppable. And then he goes on and he says, your testimonies are very sure. Holiness adorns your house, O Lord, forever. He is unending. But even before that, when it says your throne is established from old, you are from everlasting, he is uncreated. Un, 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 un. See, God is so complex that we don't have words strong enough to describe what he is or who he is. So we start describing him in the negative and we say what he's not. He doesn't have an equal, so he's unequaled. He can't be shaken. He's unchangeable. So we say he's immutable or he's unchangeable or he's unshakable. He can't be stopped. <laughs> we don't have words strong enough to describe his greatness and his majesty and his power. So we just start trying to describe him in the negative and say what he's not. He is unchangeable. He's unshakable. He's not created. He's uncreated. He's everlasting. He's eternal. He's infinite. He is El Shaddai. And He is unending. It's not like God is going to make it to 2024 and then suddenly stop doing what He's doing or suddenly come to an end or suddenly reach His expiration date. God doesn't end. He is from forever to forever. And I always have trouble with the future aspect. See, I can start right now and I can look backwards and I can say there was never a time when God was not. That's, that's pretty, it's, it's out there, but it's pretty easy to comprehend that God has always been. But thinking to the future about there will never be a time when God is not. This whole world, everything in it will come to an end. But for eternity onward, He will never cease. I just, it's hard to get my mind around that. From forever to forever, God is. Now if you go over to Jeremiah 8 where I had you guys read. I wanted to describe a little bit about who God is. And like I said, you're going to have to forgive me if this isn't super eloquent because this is just me talking. This is just off the cuff. This isn't rehearsed. This isn't planned. This isn't studied for. This is just me sharing where I'm at. The prophet says, I would comfort myself in sorrow. I would comfort myself in sorrow. My heart is faint in me. First word, I like alliteration, so just put faint. My heart is faint within me. See, the prophet is describing the dispersion of the Jews. That's what this, this is about. Babylonian captivity, the Jews are driven out. The prophet is describing the dispersion of the Jews and their turning from God as a result of the dispersion. But he says this, he says, I... I have gotten to a place where I am so weak and I'm so tired. I'm sick and tired of being sick and tired. I'm sick and tired of looking around and seeing everybody want everything but God. I'm sick of it. 
I'm broken. I'm weak. And have you ever gotten to this point, like looking around at the state of the church, looking at people, how people are so satisfied with the status quo, they're so satisfied with the mundane and with the ordinary that we just keep going through the motions and then we go home and then we come back and then we go through the motions and then we go home and we come back and we go through the motions. It's like, where is the hunger for Jesus? Where is the hunger for God? And the prophet's in this state where he's fed up and he's like, I am so sick of it. I just, misery loves company. I would just comfort myself with my sorrow. Meaning my depression has finally become, come to a point where it's my comfort. And you know, when people are addicted to something or people are struggling with depression and I counsel them, the first thing that I have to do is tell them, you have to realize that your addiction your depression, your anger, your resentment, your grudge, your unforgiveness has become a security blanket. It has, in a sense, become your God. And in order for you to get deliverance from that, you are going to have to move to a place where you say, God, I don't want to comfort myself in sorrow anymore. I want to be comforted by the Comforter, the Holy Spirit. I want to experience your presence and I want to put this faintness off of me. I want to put this addiction off of me. I want to put this pain and this agony off of me. And I want you. It's easier said than done. It's easier said than done. And he says, listen, listen. The next point is far, F-A-R, far. Listen. The voice, the cry of the daughter of my people. From a far country. Is not the Lord in Zion? Is not her king in her? Now, I'm going to be very careful. I don't like to speak negatively in general. But, but here's something that I've come to realize. Have you ever heard the thing, actions speak louder than words? So I don't think you ask any Christian, if you ask anyone that attends church, anyone that says that they're a believer, is God in the church? I don't think that most of the time they would outright say no. I don't, I mean, there's probably some people out there that would say, no, of course not, whatever. But there's what's called practical atheism. And it's when we say something, but our actions say something different. There are people out there that if you took God out of their life, the idea of God out of their life, it wouldn't change their life. I mean, it might change what they're doing on a Sunday morning, occasionally. But would it change anything else? Ask yourself, if you took God out of my life, God and everything associated with God, out of my life, what would it change? What would it change? Would it change the way that I talk? Would it change the way that I eat? Would it change the way where I go and who I see and what I do? Would it change my job? Would it change? Like, what would it change? Because there are people right now in churches everywhere. I don't know about in this church because y'all are awesome, but there are people. 
There are people in churches everywhere that if you took God out of their life, it may change what they're doing on a Sunday morning, but that would be it. They already don't read their Bible. They already don't pray. They already don't worship. They already don't listen to Christian music. They already don't have any serious devotion outside of just attending a church service once or twice a month. It's become so infrequent. Church attendance has become so infrequent that now if somebody goes to two services a month, they're called a church goer. A frequent churchgoer. So it wouldn't really change anything but their schedule a few hours a month. They live their life as if they didn't believe in God at all. So their cry is, is there even a God in church? See, Zion is the city of God. The church is the city of God. You know, Jerusalem, Zion. I'm, I'm... spiritualizing this a little bit he's talking about is God still in Israel because Israel's been dispersed and they don't know what's going on as a result of the dispersion but I'm taking this and spiritualizing it and saying is God in the church or is he not is the king is Christ the king in church or is he not that's the question the cry of the people now let me go a little bit further let me go a little bit further so that's practical atheism that's at the bottom but then you have people that are prestigious. They're real proper. And they're the people on this side of the fence, way over here. And they have created a doctrine and a system that can be understood by the head and doesn't have to be processed by the heart. And they will allow God in the church if He conforms to their theology. If he doesn't conform to their theology, he's not welcome. If he's going to oppose their tradition, he's not welcome. It's the same thing that the Pharisees did with Jesus when Jesus looks at them and he says, by your traditions you nullify the word of God because you have created an interpretation and a system of theology that's so strict that when God shows up, he doesn't fit into your box so you say he's not God. That's what happened with Jesus. Like, I'm not just saying that that's in our day. Like, there's literal biblical precedent that this happened once already and it's happened again in our day. That they have created systems that are so dry and so dead and so rigid that when God shows up to move, He doesn't fit so it can't be God. And then they start attacking everybody that has a system other than theirs. Listen, there are systems of theology out there that are ruthless to anyone that's outside of their system. And they will cut you down and say that you're not even a believer if you don't conform to their particular interpretation. And it's not if you don't believe Bible, it's if you interpret Bible differently than them. This is the prestigious proper side. And then just to keep the alliteration with the P's, then you've got the playful side. (laughs) Or let's say the Pentecostal side. Let's say the Pentecostal extremist side where we get way over here and we like our good services. We like our music. We like our worship. We like our shouting, our hallelujah, our shofar blowing, our dancing, spinning around, climbing on the backs of chairs, swinging from the chandeliers. We like our services. We like our gifts of the Spirit. We like our laying hands on people. We like it when people crumple to the floor. We like it when they flop like a fish. But 
we don't really have much structure. We don't really have much doctrine. We got a whole lot of spirit, but not a lot of truth. They got a whole lot of truth, but not a lot of spirit. Jesus says the Father's seeking those to worship him in spirit and truth. And when I say far, Faith and I, with our kids, now I'm going to get down like this because this is how we do it with our kids, we make our circle with our hands. And we say this circle, this is the promises of God. Ephesians 6, 1, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor thy father and mother, for this is the first commandment with promise, that it may be well with thee, and that thou mayest live long upon the earth. This is the promises of God. And when you separate yourself from the Lordship of Jesus Christ, when you decide to be your own boss, you're like a leaf on a tree that jumps off. What happens to a leaf when it jumps off the tree? It dies. What happens to a branch when it gets broken from the vine? It dies. What happens to you when you separate yourself from the promises of God? When you get outside of the circle, what happens to you? You become subject to the dominion of death, and you are made yourself a stranger and a foreigner from the promises of God. You were in the circle, but your actions have caused you to march right outside the circle this is the way that we discipline our kids and we talk to them when they decide that they want to be their own boss and they don't want to submit to the headship of mama and papa or Emma and papa when they decide that they don't want to follow the instruction and the hierarchy that God has set up in the home this is the conversation that we have and this this circle is the promises of God right here in the middle what we have done is we have went over to this extreme with our proper prestigious interpretation of scripture our fancy beautiful framework that you can put on a website that you can present to people and they can understand everything that you think there's no exceptions There's no fanaticism. There's no things open to interpretation. When you get up, you better preach a 22-minute sermon. You're going to have worship. It better last 13 minutes. You're going to have an exhortation to open the service. It better be three and a half to five minutes and not a second more because we're on a timetable because everybody needs to be out by 12 o'clock. And then when we come back for service, now it's nighttime. It's a p.m. service. So if we still have those, it's a p.m. service. So now instead of 13 minutes for worship, I want 8 minutes for worship. And instead of 22 minutes for a message, now I want 15 minutes for a message. And we want everything so orchestrated. Nothing can be open to interpretation. Nothing can be subject to the move and the leading of the Holy Spirit. Everything has to be pretty and pristine and proper and dry and dead. But over here, there can be no structure. Everything has to be willy-nilly and everything has to be floating and the the Spirit has to show up and everything has to be great. And I want that. But the problem is, is that that means that we separate ourselves from the Scripture. And then we just say, well, this gift, and we start talking about things that aren't even in the Bible and we start saying that this is what this means and this is what this means and then we start variating and leaving theology behind and then we have a portrait of God that's more similar to witchcraft and New Age than it is even to the God of Scripture. So you got the playful, pristine side, and then you got the or the proper and pristine side, and then you got the playful side over here. One has spirit, but no truth. One has truth, but no spirit. And both of them are far from the promises of God. And then you have people in gradual stages closer to the circle. And I'm not saying that I'm perfect that I'm in the circle, because I've been way over here and I've been way over there. And I just kind of flop back like a seesaw throughout my Christian walk. And I think everybody is trying to get closer and closer to the middle and to be inside the promises of God. And I'm not saying that if you are over here, you are excluded, or if you're over there, you're excommunicated from. That's not what I'm saying. God is too good for that. What I am saying is that you're not where you could be. God has more. And through our separation, our farness, we begin to participate in false worship. 
There's your next F, false worship. False worship because we begin to worship our system and not our Savior. We begin to worship our thoughts and our theology and not our Jesus. Or we begin to worship our services and our fun. And we begin to exalt the gifts more than the giver of the gifts. Come on. That's why the Lord, his response to them, they are far away and they say, is God even in the church? Is Jesus even in the church anymore? And God responds to them. And how does he respond to them? He responds to them by saying, you are the one that have went after idols. You are the one. What does he say? He says, why have they provoked me to anger with their carved images, with their foreign idols? Why? They have let the surroundings, their circumstances, dictate their worship rather than God. And you know what's funny about this? I have this saying, the dead lay comfortably with the dead. I've never once walked through a cemetery. I've done several funerals and I've been to lots of cemeteries and I've never once been in a cemetery and heard a corpse under the ground say, why did you bury me next to him? I've never heard it. I've never heard him say, ah, my neighbor is awful. (laughs) They don't care. They're laying comfortably. (laughs) I wish I could disintegrate and deteriorate next to somebody better looking than them. Like, they don't care. They're dead. And that's what happens. Death speaks to death. You get over here and you're proper, pristine theology and everything is so pretty and you're dead and everybody's so happy and comfortable and you can have all these great conversations and have a great time gathered together and singing some songs that have no spirit in them whatsoever because you're dead and everybody else there is dead too. And so everybody looks comfortable. And over here, everybody's dead. It's just a different form of death. Some death's a little bit more mushy than other death. <laughs> That's a pretty picture for you. But they're dead too. And it's like, who cares that it's dead? It has a good beat to it. Who cares that it's dead? This is my favorite song. Who cares that it's dead? They shout when they preach. And they go, ha! Who cares that it's dead? I stopped by today to tell you. Like, who cares? It's dead. This is what I like. This is the style of preaching I like. It's dead. Who cares? And so what does the church respond with? The harvest has passed, the summer has ended, and we're not saved. And I'm not talking about salvation, okay? There are a lot of people that are saved that are going to stand before God. 1 Corinthians 3, they're going to stand before God. Verses 10 through 15. Paul, as a wise master of the builder, I have laid the foundation, another man buildeth thereon. And if any man build upon that foundation, see that he build on no other foundation other than the foundation which is already laid, which is Jesus Christ. And let every man test his work to see what sort it is, because every work, every one shall be tried by fire, and the day shall declare even as if by fire. One builds with gold, silver, and precious stones, and another with wood, hay, and stubble. And the fire shall try every man's work as what sort it is. And some's work will remain and some will be consumed, but he will still be saved. That's what it said. He will still be saved, but his work will be consumed. And it will be nothing. So I'm not talking about salvation. There's many people that will get in the kingdom and they'll be broke. Because all the works that they built up, everybody could see it. It was beautiful, it was extravagant, but it was built out of hay. I'm talking about the work of Silver and gold and precious stones, the work that 
abides. So I'm not saying that they're not saved because they have doctrine and they're mean about it. And I'm not saying that they're not saved because they have spirit and they like good services but they have no doctrine and they have no truth. I'm not saying, I'm just saying they're out of balance. And a false balance is an abomination before the Lord. So am I saying that they're saved? If they confess the name of Jesus Christ and believe in their heart that God raised Him from the dead, then yes, I believe that they are saved, but I do not believe that they're going to have as much of a reward in this life or in the next as they could. Because they're out of the circle. Because they're far away. And participating in false worship. And so when they cry this out, the harvest is past, the summer is, we're not saved. I'm not talking about salvation, sal- uh, like spiritual salvation. I'm not talking about heaven and hell. That's only a piece of it. I'm talking about God moving and healing and bringing restoration into our life now. In here, on earth as it is in heaven. I'm talking about healing I'm talking about healing, physical healing. I'm talking about mental healing. I'm talking about the restoration of joy. I'm talking about the removal of anxiety, the healing of depression. I'm talking about God moving in your circumstances and bringing reconciliation and social healing. I'm talking about financial provision and deliverance and blessing. I'm talking about God moving in life now. And people will say, our theology says, that after the apostles died out, the gift slowly faded out because that was ushering in the new covenant. And once the new covenant was ushered in and the Bible was presented, there was no more gifts of the Spirit. So therefore, we don't believe in healing. Therefore, we don't believe in God operating now. We believe in a mental salvation. Or, everything's open to the discrepancy of God. God didn't heal you because He didn't want to. You see what I'm saying? And they're crying. Well, God must not have wanted to heal you. God must not have wanted to move. Or they fake it. Listen, I believe in the word of faith. I believe in believing for something and holding on to it by faith. But I do not believe in pretending. I do not believe in denying reality. I do not believe in ignoring what you're experiencing. So real quick, I'm going to share a story with you guys, and then we'll, mo- we'll keep moving on. Actually, hang on. Let's, let's, we'll come back to that. So Jeremiah, he cries out, For the hurt of the daughter of my people, I am hurting. I am mourning. Astonishment has taken hold of me. And this is what he cries out. This is what he cries out. Is there no balm in Gilead? Is there no balm in Gilead? Is there no physician there? Why then is there no recovery for the health of the daughter of my people? The daughter of my people is those descended from Israel, spiritual Israel, the church. Why is there no recovery for the health of the church? Why? You remember they started off and they said, Is God in Zion? Is the king there? And we started this off by saying God is unequaled. God is unshakable. God is unstoppable. God is uncreated. God is unending. And I wanted you to know who God was, that He's King, that He's still on the throne, so that when we float into this conversation and people that are far from Him, that are engaging in false worship, are asking, is God even in the church anymore? And if He does, does He even operate this way? Because when the prophet cries out and says, is there a bomb in Gilead? He's asking a rhetorical question. They're asking by their actions. Remember, actions speak louder than words. They're living their life like God isn't there. We sing about God. How often do we sing to God? We talk about God. How often do we talk to God? We do things for God. How often do we do things with God? 
We live our life oftentimes like God is abstract up there other than when really He's closer than your next breath. And so they're living their life in such a way that the cry... Listen, they're in foreign countries. The dispersion, they're scattered all over the place. Jeremiah is not standing on his front porch hearing somebody yelling from Carthage or wherever saying, Is God in the church? No, he's observing the way that the Jews are living in captivity and seeing that they're not living like God still exists. Their actions are what's crying out. And so his response to that is, is God not still there? Is there not a balm in Gilead? Is the great physician not still in the church? If he is, which we know he is, then why is there no recovery for the health of the daughter of my people? Why is there no healing in the church? And I keep getting frustrated with this and I'm like, we have a better covenant than the old We have a better covenant which is established upon better promises. Jesus Christ is the mediator of a better covenant. For the law made nothing perfect, but the bringing of a better hope did, by the which we draw nigh unto God. That's Hebrews 7.19. We have a better covenant. For bringing in a new covenant made the first old, and now that which is old, that which waxeth old and decayeth is ready to vanish away. We have a better covenant in Christ Jesus. And yet, what we walk in is less than what I see in the Old Covenant. I see more healing in the Old Covenant than what we walk in today. Tell me I'm wrong. When's the last time you've seen somebody raised from the dead? With your eyes. When's the last time? When's the last time you've seen somebody with leprosy touched and healed? When's the last time you saw somebody... I mean, Hebrews is full of women receive their dead, raise their life again. When's the last time you saw somebody, uh, somebody say, hey, go jump in that river and your leprosy's gone or your skin condition's gone or your disease? When's the last time you saw broken bones mended? When's the last time you saw somebody, they dig a grave and there's bones in there and they're like, oh, let's toss this dead man on those bones and as soon as he hits the bones, he jumps up and runs, takes off running. When's the last time? So in the Old Covenant, I see more healing in the Old Covenant, then I see the church of today walking in. And it's an indictment. Because it's available, we have a better covenant. And now I'm going to tell you a story. And I was debating about whether or not I should tell you guys this story, but I'm going to tell you. So on Wednesday night, we were, I was teaching on Revelation. And I said I was going to share something off the cuff about the correlation between the Song of Moses and the Song of the Lamb. Right? And I gave you some R words. And the reason that that was off the cuff is because, how many of you guys know what theology in a vacuum is? Theology in a vacuum, if you vacuum seal something, it means nothing can get in, not even air. Theology in a vacuum is when somebody is isolated in this separate place, like an ivory tower, school, college, something, and they're living in this separate place, and then they write about something. See, it's easy for you to preach about healing when you don't have to face sickness. It's easy easy for someone to talk about drug addiction when they don't have any idea and they've never been addicted. It's easy for someone to preach about alcoholism when they've never drank. I mean, it's easy to talk about God delivering you from these things when you've never been in those things. It's easy for someone to stand up here and talk about somebody going through abuse when they've never been abused. It's easy to talk about something separated from the issue. But when you get down into the issue and it's a little messy, then it changes your perspective on how you preach about that. So 
I'm going to tell you guys, this past week, guess who waged war with kidney stones? This guy. It started on Monday. Back pain, nausea, fevers, in and out, cramping in the stomach, pain in all sorts of unpleasant places. And it got worse on Tuesday. And it got worse on Wednesday. And Thursday it was real bad. Friday I woke up symptom free. <laughs> Come on! Wall, will you praise with me? <laughs> I mean, will these stones cry out because y'all aren't praising? Like... Come on, I don't know if you've ever had kidney stones, but when you wake up and you're symptom-free, that's something to say, thank you, Jesus, about. <laughs> I mean, come on, you go from peeing out razor blades to not, like, hallelujah, thank you, Jesus. <laughs> oh, gosh. Listen, during this time, I set up some rules. I set up some rules for myself. And I followed these rules. And I'm not going to say that I'm perfect. Because I have been sick. I've been sick since I've been pastoring this church. I've been sick in the last three or four months. And I didn't follow these rules. And I was just miserable. And then I milked it for everything that was worse and my wife would baby me. But <laughs> I'll own it. I'm good. <laughs> you know, breakfast in bed is nice. I'm just... <laughs> anyway. <laughs> anyway. Anyway. So I'm not saying that I do this every time and that I've been perfect every time, but I set up some rules because I got tired. I got real tired of every time the devil wants to kick me in the shin, I go down like a lead weight. You ever get tired of that? You ever get tired of just walking down the street and the devil trips you and you just knock your front, two front teeth out spiritually? I get tired of it. I am not the devil's punching bag. I have a better covenant than that. And I'm sick and tired of walking like I am the devil's punching bag. So I decided this week I'm going to walk according to some rules. And I shared a few of those on Wednesday, but I'm going to share those with you guys this morning. Because guess what? We have a God that is unequal. We have a God that is unshakable. We have a God that is unstoppable. We have a God that is uncreated and that is unending. That's something worth praising about. He still sits on the throne. There is a king in the church, and his name is Christ Jesus. There is a God in Zion, and his name is Christ Jesus. And he is the great physician, and he is the balm of Gilead, and he is there for the recovery of the health of the daughter of his people. And we can walk in that. It's ours to inherit. It's part of his promises to us. And I'm tired of us not walking in that. So here's the rules. Number one. Number one refuse to own it refuse to own it it is not part of your identity you do not say my sickness my cancer my back pain my kidney stones you do not say my anxiety or my depression it is not yours it is an attack of the enemy it does not belong to you it is not part of your identity it is not part of God's plan for you so refuse to own it say no that is not mine that is the weapon that the enemy has formed against me. But Isaiah 54, 7 or 17, I'm not sure which, says, No weapon formed against me shall prosper, and every mouth that rises up against me in judgment shall be condemned. It is not part of what God has for me. I rebuke that in the name of Jesus. I refuse to take ownership of that. I refuse to identify with that. That's the first point. The second point is resist the temptation to speak death over yourself. 
Resist the temptation to speak death over yourself. Resist the temptation to speak death over yourself. And yes, I keep repeating that because I want you to remember that. You do not need to curse yourself over and over and over and over again. We do that by saying, this sickness is really getting the best of me. This back just keeps giving me problems. My old age is just making my joints hurt. It's hard for me to get up and down anymore. I just don't remember things the way I used to. I'm just never going to get past this sickness. My immune system doesn't function the way that it used to. Come on. You guys know what you've said. What you still say. What you've said already today. What you thought about saying while I'm saying this. You know how easy it would be to say every time Faith asked me how I was doing? To say, I'm not doing okay. This hurts, that hurts. It's super easy to get into that thing of speaking your breath into the power of the enemy. Giving life to the enemy's schemes. Speaking death into your own life. Death and life are in the power of the tongue and they love it, shall eat the fruit thereof. There's some fruit I want to eat, there's other fruit that don't want me to eat it. In fact, there's a garden in London that has, it's called the Garden of Death and it has a thing on the gate and it says, these plants will kill you. You're not allowed to go in, in alone. And there's some plants in there that are so poisonous they're kept in glass cases because even touching them will kill you. Those are not the kind of fruits I want to eat. That ain't the kind of plants I want to go through. And it has like all the people that have poisoned or murdered somebody with plants. It has like a plaque and the plant that they used. Serious. It's a real place. You can look it up. But anyway, those plants, you eat them, you receive death. And sometimes our mouth is doing the same thing. Proverbs 21.23 says this. It says, He that guards his mouth and his tongue shall keep his soul from many troubles. You can keep yourself from trouble if you just watch what you say. Resist the temptation to speak death over yourself. Ooh, I like the NIV word, calamity. That's a good word. <laughs> calamity. You can keep yourself from that if you just resist what you say. Resist the desire or the temptation to speak death over yourself. The next one is rebuke the enemy. Rebuke the enemy. The Bible says that if you submit unto God and rebuke or resist the devil, he will flee from you. Rebuke the enemy. You have that power. You have the power to say, devil, you have no place here. You don't belong here. You don't have the authority to be here and to speak in my life. Think of how much different the Bible would be if Eve looked at that snake and said, I rebuke you in the name of Jesus. <laughs> Get out. You don't have authority to be here. Or if Adam stood up and did his job and kept the snake out of place in the first place. Anyway, but we always blame Eve, but Adam failed before Eve sinned. I'm just saying. Adam's job was to protect the garden, and he let the snake in, and the snake tempted Eve, and she sinned. Adam failed, Eve sinned. Anyway, rebuke the devil. The next point is you have your own responsibility. See, even though I was 
refusing to identify with it, even though I was resisting the temptation to speak death, even though I rebuked the devil, guess what I drank? I drank cranberry juice, I ate oranges, I drank lemon in my water, I drank plenty of fluids, because I have a responsibility to steward my body well. You know, you're dealing with diabetes and you popping back Krispy Kremes like, Lord, thank you for healing me. Like, <laughs> I'm just saying, <laughs> I mean, you ain't really doing yourself any favors. You have a responsibility. You need to do your due diligence to steward your body well. Drink water, get rest, exercise, detox. Anyway, the next point is request your healing. Ask God to heal you. James says that from whence cometh fightings and wars among you, come they not hence of the lusts that war in your members, you lust and you have not, you fight and war, you kill and you cannot obtain, you have not because you ask not, you ask and you have not because you ask amiss, that you may consume it upon your own lust. But the point is, is you have not because you ask not. You don't have because you don't ask. Jesus says this, he says, ask anything in my name and my Father will give it to you that your joy may be made full he says in first john 5 he says ask anything according to the will of god and he will grant us or he will hear us and we are confident that if he hears us he will give us the petitions that we put before him ask request but here's the caveat i'm sorry i'm not supposed to say that word she says i said the word caveat too much here's the catch here's the catch ask once ask one time Ask one time. I use this illustration a lot. If my son Asher comes up to me and says, Papa, can I have a glass of orange juice? And I take the time and I pour him a glass of orange juice. I make the provision ready and I hand him the glass of orange juice. And he's holding the glass of orange juice. And he looks at me and he says, Papa, can I have a glass of orange juice? And I'm like, you've already got it. And he says, Papa, can I have a glass of orange juice? And I say, you already got it. And he says, Papa, can I have a glass of orange juice? And I say, son, you've already got it. Drink it. His asking is preventing him from partaking in the fruit of his request. And we keep asking. We ask God for healing. And God's like, you already have it. And like, God, will you heal me? And He's like, you're already healed. You were healed 2,000 years ago on Calvary. God, will you heal me? You're already healed. God, will you heal me? You're already healed. God, will you heal me? If you'd shut up and partake in the promise, then you would have the manifestation of the healing that God paid for you 2,000 years ago. Ask one time. Request one time. Because you continuing to ask shows that you don't believe that you got it. Continuing to ask for the same thing shows that you don't believe you have it in the first place. Request one time. And then move into a twofold state. The first, hey, you guys got, you guys got this, you're getting good. Move into the first state, remembrance. Remember the work of Jesus Christ. The person and work of Jesus Christ on the cross. How many of you guys know the purpose of communion? 
For I delivered unto you that which was also delivered unto me. And the night that Jesus Christ was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it and he gave it to the disciples and he said, this is my body which is broken for you. As often as you eat this or do this, uh, do so in remembrance of me. And then he took the cup and he said, this is the wine of the new covenant, my blood which is shed for you. As often as you drink this, do so in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat the bread and drink the cup, you do proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. It's done in remembrance. And then Paul goes on and he says, if anyone does this unworthily, he drinks eats and drinks damnation unto himself for this cause many of you sleep or many of you are sick and many of you sleep or are dead because you do not partake in communion in a worthy or reverential manner and if you that is the product and the cause of what you do if you do it irreverently and inappropriately then the opposite must also be true if you do communion in an appropriate and a reverential manner you must be healed and alive If doing it irreverently brings sickness and death, then doing it reverently must bring health and life. You need healing to manifest in your body. You believe that you have it. You ask one time. You believe that you have it. And then you start taking communion and remember what Christ purchased for you on the cross. Healing is in the atonement. Christ died for your healing. I love Jeremiah 33, 6 when he says, It shall be health and healing for them. And I will heal them and reveal to them the abundance of peace and truth. It's health and healing. See, we like to live in sickness and then just occasionally get cool manifestations of healing. God calls you to live not just in divine healing, but in divine health. In a realm above the reach of sickness. And that's where I want to go. Remember what Christ purchased for you on the cross. And then the next point, the final point is rejoice in it. Give thanks to God. Don't keep asking, but keep thanking God. Lord, thank you for what you accomplished for me 2,000 years ago on the cross. Thank you that you have given me a covenant for healing. And memorize some scripture to go with it. Memorize some healing scriptures. Get up in your phone, and if you don't have a Bible app, go on Google and say healing scriptures. And you'll have pages upon pages of verses that you can memorize and quote or read out loud to say, God, your word says I am healed. Your word says I am healed. Your word says you're the Lord that healeth me. Your word says that I have this. This is the inheritance of the saints. It says you heal all my diseases and forgive all my iniquities it says that these are the benefits of the lord this is the inheritance of the saints you are healed it's in the covenant there is a physician in the church there is a balm in gilead there is a king on the throne and he is unequal he is unshakable he is unstoppable he is uncreated and he is unending amen let's pray dear heavenly father lord thank you for opportunity to come together and to participate in your house and delve into your word. And Lord, I pray right now over this congregation and my prayer is Psalm 105, 37 when it says this, it says he brought them out with silver and gold and there was not one sick or feeble among his tribes. Not one sick or feeble among his tribes. And so I'm speaking over Faith Memorial Church and everyone in this house that there will be none feeble. That we will walk in the inheritance of the saints that we will walk in the promises and that every single person in this house will see the manifestation of the healing of God working in their lives. Lord Jesus, 
the Bible says that when you gathered together, that the Spirit of the Lord was present to heal them. They didn't get to participate because of their doctrine. They didn't get to participate because of their preconceived notions and ideals and their predetermined judgments. But Lord, I'm praying right now that none of that stands in our way. I'm praying right now that everything is pushed aside, that everything is removed, that every wall is broken down, and that we get to fully participate in the manifestation of healing in our bodies. The same, if He raised Christ from the dead dwells in you, He shall with that same Spirit heal or quicken our mortal bodies. That is the inheritance that we have, Lord. Healing in Jesus' name. Amen.